Hello and welcome to Take a Closer Book, the podcast audio book club currently reading The Princess Bride. Congratulations, you've reached the last chapter. Sorry if you can hear the howling wind outside, but it's about minus 20 degrees where I am in the world right now, so it's a little unavoidable. There will be two more episodes after this, but this is the final proper chapter of the novel. I had a literal sea of comments to wade through for listener feedback this time around, so thanks to everyone who joined the Reddit discussion. And here are my favorite comments. Spanky MC Jigglesworth said, In college, I found out The Princess Bride was a book and loved the book almost as much as the movie. I was originally upset because my girlfriend gifted it to me, but it was just the abridged version and the movie was my favorite, so I just really wanted to read the real thing. But I read the abridged version first, and honestly, I didn't really need every part of the original for it to be a masterpiece. To this day, I still have only read the abridged version, and unless I'm gifted the original, I probably will never read it. Poor Spanky MC Jigglesworth. I don't have the heart to tell him. Cass underscore and underscore others wanted to add that being interrupted by the narrator is vital. It's what keeps the story from getting scary for younger kids, allowing all ages to enjoy it. Wandering Idiocy said, Inigo's backstory is fantastic. How much of a crotchety old man Domingo really was, and how Inigo loved him in spite of it. His first duel with Rugen as a child. How he went away to train and didn't consider himself ready until Yeste said he was. That not even a Corsican wizard could have bested him. It adds not only to the depth of his character, but also adds to Wesley's, since he was actually able to defeat Inigo at the mountaintop. Well, it was at the top of the Cliffs of Insanity, Wandering Idiocy, but... Don't worry about that. And finally, Scop said, I'm only a couple chapters into the book, but the tone is set very early on. The story twists and satirizes fantasy and romance tropes all over the place, but when it forms it into the actual plot, all of the elements are done well. There's a prince who is young and competent, yes, but he's a meathead and a putz. You can roll your eyes when Buttercup goes from insulting and badgering Wesley to over-the-top flowery confessions of love in the space of a day, but they fit so well with the tone of the story that you can forgive it and focus on the rest of the plot. It reminds me of the television show, The Orville. It's obvious that it's a send-up of Star Trek, and many elements feel like they were designed by a comedic writing team, but it's done with competent short-form storytelling and, more importantly, genuine affection for the source material. Thanks for all your great comments, I loved reading them. Now, let's dig into the final chapter of The Princess Bride and take a closer look at The Honeymoon. That's the sound of my dog chewing a bone, and this is the summary. This chapter jumps in time a lot. Going forward nine minutes, and then back six, then going forward seven again, etc. I will do my best to make this as unconfusing as possible, but be forewarned. The panic continues at the gate of the castle, until only Yellen remains. They corner Yellen, demanding the key, and thanks to Fezzik still being on fire, successfully intimidate him into handing over the key before he runs off into the night. Then, the trio enter the castle and are met by Count Rugen and four men. We go back a few minutes to the wedding, and the sounds of the panic in the courtyard reaching them. Humperdinck is pushing the priest, who speaks with a speech impediment to hurry up. They're declared man and wife at record speed. As soon as the wedding's over, Humperdinck sends Rugen off to deal with the intruder. Three minutes later, Rugen and his men find Wesley, Inigo, 
Inigo and Fezzik. Inigo finally comes face to face with the man who murdered his father, saying the line this book will forever be famous for. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Rugen orders his men to attack, but Inigo cuts them down in seconds. Rugen does the only sensible thing and runs. Back to the moment when Rugen left the wedding. King Lotharon and Queen Bella arrive, thinking they're actually early for the wedding. Humperdinck says Gildarians are attacking and asks his parent to escort Buttercup to his bedchamber. As Buttercup walks, she's in a state of shock that Wesley never came for her. Knowing she can't stay married to Humperdinck or live without Wesley, she decides to commit suicide once reaching the bedroom. Nine minutes before this decision, Inigo is in shock as well as Rugen runs away for his life. Inigo follows him down the hall, but Rugen locks the door behind him. Inigo calls for Fezzik. Fezzik doesn't want to go and leave Wesley alone, knowing Wesley is defenseless without him, but finally relents to Inigo and goes to smash the door open for him. Fezzik goes back to help Wesley, but takes a wrong turn and almost instantly gets lost as Inigo gains on Rugen. We go back to Buttercup, entering the room and looking at Humperdinck's weapon collection, picking out the perfect knife. She is about to plunge a Florinese dagger into her heart when she hears Wesley behind her. Wesley is lying in bed, thinking he has about 25 minutes of life left, but unbeknownst to him, really has about seven. Count Rugen, also armed with a Florinese dagger, and knowing Inigo is catching up to him, turns and throws the knife at Inigo. The knife hits its mark, burying itself into Inigo's stomach, and he falls to his knees. Buttercup, excited at being reunited with her love, tries to kiss him, but he lies on the bed, barely moving. Buttercup tells him she's married, but Wesley says that doesn't matter, since wives can always become widows. At that moment, Buttercup realizes Humperdinck has entered the room. He goes to kill them both, yelling to the death, but Wesley manages to stop him by calling out to the pain. His curiosity piqued, Humperdinck asks him to explain what that means. Inigo, before Buttercup has even reached her room, lies injured from Rugen's knife. As he dies, Inigo apologizes to his father. At this point, Rugen recognizes him as the son of the swordsmith he murdered. Rugen is amused by the suffering Inigo has gone through, only to fail now, but as he lies there apologizing to his dead father, it's as if he can hear his father's ghost yelling at him that he should have died years ago if all he was going to do was fail now. Then he hears MacPherson's voice, lamenting that he ever taught a Spaniard. Hearing their voices and remembering their lessons, Inigo covers his wound and crawls back to his feet. Rugen stabs him twice, but Inigo manages to parry the attacks and is only wounded in his shoulder and arm. Inigo gains the upper hand, giving Rugen mirror images of his own wounds until he cuts Rugen across the face in the same way and finally runs him through. Back to Wesley, who begins to explain what to the pain means, how he will disfigure Humperdinck, but leave him with his ears so he can hear everyone's disgust and horror when they see him. Humperdinck drops his sword, and just then Wesley collapses unconscious on the bed, his 40 minutes up. Humperdinck dives for his sword again, but just then Wesley wakes up, and Humperdinck once more surrenders. As Humperdinck is tied up by Buttercup, he claims that he will never stop hunting them, but Wesley is confident that as king of the sea, he'll have no problem evading him. Just then, Inigo comes in, and as they're wondering where Fezzik is, they hear his voice calling down from below. Fezzik has found Humperdinck's four whites. One by one, they jump out the window, and Fezzik catches them. They go to ride through the gates, but in the time they've been in the castle, Yellen has regrouped the brutes and they are standing in formation. Wesley has no idea how to escape, but Buttercup walks forward confidently, telling Yellen to move aside. But when Yellen says the brutes will only obey him because he's in charge of enforcement, Buttercup loudly proclaims that she, she is the queen. 
The brutes are intimidated by her power and afraid of her capacity for vengeance, so they step aside and let them through. Buttercup proudly explains to Wesley that her time training at princess school really paid off. The four ride off together, Buttercup and Wesley proclaiming their eternal love. And they lived happily ever after. Goldman interrupts the narration, saying what his father had at that point in the story. Young Billy is surprised about the abrupt ending and what happened with the rumors about the pirate ship, but his father assures him that's the end. It isn't until he does the abridgment that Goldman learns the truth. His father never read him the real ending of the story. Goldman includes the final page. Behind them, they hear Humperdinck already leading the charge after them. Inigo's wound reopens. Wesley relapses. Fezzik gets lost, and Buttercup's horse loses a shoe. The end! Goldman comes back one final time. Morgenstern was a satirist, he says, so the ending turned out that way. But as the abridger of the good parts version, Goldman has his own ideas about how the story ends. In his mind, the pirate ship is there, and they all make it away to safety. Not to mean they get a happy ending. He also imagines that Wesley and Buttercup fight a lot, Buttercup loses her looks, and Fezzik and Inigo will eventually lose an easy fight. Goldman claims he isn't trying to be a downer and that he does believe in true love, but more than that, he believes that life isn't fair, it's just fairer than death. One last analysis and opinion. This chapter's quick cutting back and forth between scenes, keeping the times clearly listed at the beginning of each section, really gives this chapter an urgency and momentum different from the rest of the novel. The entire chapter is told over about a 30-minute period. It's a great way to keep our interest, but also a great ticking clock counting down to when Miracle Max's pill wears off. Having very little time also gives our characters a final chance to really shine. One of the best parts of this novel is the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the characters and it's great to see their abilities at work, and also to see them advance. Inigo finally achieves his lifelong goal of revenge, Fezzik finally has a good idea that it works, being finding the white horses and getting them ready for an escape, Buttercup exerts her power and beauty to help someone other than herself for once, and Wesley, well, Wesley literally defeats death, for a little bit at least. No matter how you take the ending, there's still a wonderful sense that they've all achieved something. Now, let's talk about that ending, shall we? It's hard to call it a happy ending, though I don't think I'd be wrong in calling it a hopeful ending. The main point Goldman gets across is that yes, life is hard and crazy and unpredictable, but there's no substitute. No matter how shitty life can be, it's still better than the alternative. I personally like this message. Too many fairy tales end with them living happily ever after, and here we're given a choice. You can believe the story ended where Mr. Goldman Sr. stopped reading, or ended with all four of them dying horribly that night, or that there is another ending, somewhere in the gray area, where life goes on with all the disappointments and joys of a life fully lived. Book the movie! I think I said somewhere in episode 3 that if the novel is the good parts version, then the movie is the good parts version of the good parts version. Beat for beat, very little of this chapter changed from book to movie, with the blinding exception of the ending. Simply put, in the film, we get the ending that young Billy got when his father stopped reading to him. And frankly, even keeping in mind that Inigo is injured, Wesley maybe had all his life sucked out of him, and Shirley Humperdinck, the greatest hunter of all time, isn't going to let them go without a chase, but when Buttercup and Wesley kiss at the end, 
It just gives you the fuzzies. In the book, we have a little more of a dilemma. Do we blindly choose the happy ending, staying ignorant to the cardinal rule that life isn't fair, or do we accept that life is a little more nuanced? For my own dime, I think the movie made the right decision. The first time I read the book, I was angry. After analyzing it this much, even though I have a greater appreciation of the original ending, I still think the movie works better. Sure, life isn't fair, but this isn't life. This is a fairy tale, and I want my happily ever after. Well, I can't believe I made it through the novel, but we're not over yet. As I said at the beginning, we have two more episodes. Next week, we'll take a look at the unfinished sequel, Buttercup's Baby. And in the final episode, dedicated to the Princess Bride, I will be hosting a discussion with some of the members of this audiobook club. In the meantime, please feel free to send your feedback and share your thoughts with me on Twitter, at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E. So, stay tuned and keep reading. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run. You scream. You cry. You run and run and run. And you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, The White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the white snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuineveraLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R. 
B-R-E-L-E-E.com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by bensound.com.